Well, thank you very much, Roger, and thank all of you for uh, coming today. And uh, I wanted to thank the panelists this morning, too, for a series of uh, really uh, interesting, fascinating uh, discussions on, on a wide variety of uh, subjects relating to the, to the question of uh, individual liberty and initiative. Uh, Rogers asked me to look uh, at this uh, uh, from an international context, uh, which I think is important to do, both for what it says about our own country and for what it says about the threats we face uh, from, from around the world. And by coincidence, or maybe not, today is the uh, 21st anniversary of East Germany's decision to open uh, its frontier with the West, and obviously that was a signal moment uh, in our history, um, uh, given that that, uh, that really reflected the beginning of the end of the Cold War, followed just a little bit over two years later on uh, December the 31st, 1991, when the Soviet Union itself was dissolved into its constituent republics. Now, the, the end of the Cold War uh, produced a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, jubilation, uh, reflecting uh, what some would call uh, the, the vindication of the, the Whig theory of history that uh, progress is always, we're always moving forward and so, and so on, something we all fall prey to. But it was particularly uh, evident uh, after the collapse of uh, the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, people were writing things about the end of history uh, because uh, obviously democracy and the uh, free market had triumphed and there, there wasn't anything else left. It was all over. We, we had won and so there were no, no further threats to uh, concern us. And in fact, this even became embodied in, uh, during the Clinton administration in what they referred to as the Washington Consensus, that democracy and free markets were the answer to pretty much everything some quibbling about what exactly you mean by democracy and even more quibbling about what you mean by free markets, but, but basically reflecting the idea that uh, there wasn't really anything uh, much to debate about. Uh, it turns out, uh, uh, not surprisingly, uh, that that's not true and uh, that, uh, that whatever our views here in the United States, there are a lot of other people in the rest of the world who actually don't share the Washington consensus and aren't wild about representative government and the markets. Um, and, and that leads us uh, in, into a debate about exactly uh, how we're going to respond uh, to those other governments and, and their supporters, and, and why I think it's uh, critical for us not to, uh, uh, to take the utilitarian arguments in favor of uh, individual freedom as, as the only important arguments, uh, important though they are. The utilitarian argument basically for markets, at least in particular, is this is how you maximize national wealth, liberty, and all things bright and beautiful. Uh, I certainly believe that, but it does nag at me from time to time that maybe the utilitarian argument uh, doesn't always capture what's going on, at least in the short term, the short term being defined as, uh, as uh, several generations of human life. I think it's important to remember the moral argument for individual liberty as well, even if in any given uh, period of history, it doesn't seem to be working out uh, quite as well as it should. Uh, and to me, the moral argument was, was best put 
uh, although I didn't, I don't think he intended to put it this way, by a, by a Brit named John Ruskin, who in 1870 wrote the following. One evening when I was yet in my nurse's arms, I wanted to touch the tea urn, which was boiling merrily. My nurse would have taken me away from the urn, but my mother said, let him touch it. So I touched it, and that was my first lesson in liberty. <laughs> now, Ruskin, when he wrote that, was a socialist, and my guess is that his remedy, or at least the Obama remedy today, would be a national commission on tea urns and um, steps to take, uh, take care of innocent uh, children from callous mothers and, uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, I viewed it, though, as a central uh, insight into what liberty means for us, which is not merely uh, the liberty to make decisions and succeed and do well, but the liberty to fail, too. Because uh, markets are not good just when they're going up and turn bad when they go down. That, that is the nature of markets and I would say uh, human life more generally. Uh, and that, that the, the moral component of liberty, I think, is particularly important to us when we, when we look around the world because uh, I think there's a lot of bad news out there about the, uh, the, uh, uh, the utilitarian side of totalitarian and authoritarian states. You know, they don't do badly sometimes when it comes to mobilizing resources and posing uh, threats. Now, you know, in the 20th century, we, we looked at the first two world wars. I described a moment ago the successful end of the third world war, the Cold War. We look at the first two, uh, the defeat of uh, uh, Germany and the central powers in World War I, uh, and the defeat of Nazism and the Axis powers in World War II, and then the third world war, defeat of communism, and it looks like a pretty good century. You know, we're 3-0, and and uh, the bad guys aren't doing that well. I just want to suggest it didn't turn out that way as easily as we remember it. Uh, you know, if Hitler had been a little less greedy, uh, if he had restrained himself from attacking the Soviet Union, uh, if he had consolidated his power over Europe uh, and focused on Great Britain, instead of launching uh, the attack uh, against uh, uh, Stalin's Soviet Union, it might well have turned out differently. Uh, if, if the Russians had not been bled uh, so badly in World War II, uh, they might have been able to hold on to their empire. We forget that one of the consequences of World War II was the end of the European colonial empires caused because Britain was uh, on its back after the war economically. France really never qualified as a major player in the, in the war. The Dutch had been wiped out. And ultimately, the collapse of the Soviet empire, which is what happened in uh, 1991, uh, was launched on the way by the uh, massive human and economic cost of World War II. Um, uh, these, these are, are factors that ought to give us a little bit of a pause uh, when we look ahead at the challenges uh, that we face around the world and that our precepts of uh, representative government and, uh, and uh, free market economies face as well. I just want to run through in, uh, in the time we have uh, several examples of this so that we can begin to think about uh, what it means to both preserve our own uh, 
system of liberty and continue to maximize it versus these uh, other visions, uh, not all of them necessarily threats in the immediate short term, but these other visions that are out there. And let me start, uh, perhaps improbably uh, for some, with the European Union. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the idea that, uh, that, that self-government in Europe is as democratic or as free and open as it is here in the United States. Number one, most European systems are parliamentary. They don't have separation of powers. You win a majority in parliament, you control the executive branch. So much for the tension we see between president and Congress. And even in uh, countries like France, where the Constitution of the Fifth Republic has a strong president and a strong parliament, it was always in intended or envisioned that in most cases they would govern uh, in the same party. Moreover, by and large, the parliamentary systems use proportional representation. They don't have their representatives tied to geographic constituencies. They run on the basis of party lists that are comprised by, uh, or put together by the leaders of the party at the national level. I leave the UK out of this for the moment. So that if a party gets 8.9% of the national vote, it gets 8.9% of the representation in Parliament according to a list that the average voters had nothing to do with it. So uh, do people vote for governments in Europe? Sure they do. Are they as robust and democratic and open as they are in the United States? I don't think so. You know, we still in many states vote for judges uh, and uh, vote to recall judges. I think that's a good thing. Uh, I could see a little of that at the federal level as an experiment from time to time. The Europeans are horrified that we vote for judges. Uh, so, so starting from what I think is a different uh, basis uh, in many respects, now look at the phenomenon of the European Union. Which, uh, which encompasses the, uh, the, the all, virtually all of the domestic policy decisions of the member governments conducted in Brussels in mass meetings of diplomats and bureaucrats from around the European Union uh, with next to no transparency or visibility, certainly next to no democratic accountability on the, on the, on the part of the people who actually live in the European Union. The figures uh, were compiled in Britain some time back, and they're absolutely shocking. They vary a little bit depending on who you're listening to, but something like between two-thirds and 90% of all the legislation that Parliament passes today is simply enacting into UK law uh, decisions that have already been made in Brussels. Now, that is phenomenal. Uh, and, and in other countries, I'm sure the, the percentage is roughly the same. That's why in Europe today they talk about the democratic deficit, because uh, none of the uh, members of the so-called executive of the European Union are elected by anybody other than uh, other government bureaucrats. The European Parliament is, if I may say so, a joke uh, that has virtually no influence over the workings of the European Union, and uh, it doesn't look like that's going to change unless uh, we see uh, the breakup of the Eurozone, which I don't put as being beyond question. But here you've got uh, you know, largely democratic societies creating a structure that is fundamentally anti-democratic and living with it very happily. 
um, uh, in ways that uh, perhaps weren't intended at the outset of the European Union, but which continues to progress uh, in a direction that I think most Americans would be profoundly disturbed with. And I think that's one of the reasons, among several, why the European Union has moved away from the United States over time, because these are people who see their interest in what happens in Brussels and uh, the governance of the European Union as being divorced from the interest of uh, the nation states that uh, make it up. Let me turn now to Russia, which, uh, which may be the first example, or certainly the biggest example that I can think of, uh, of a country that started with a totalitarian, or in its later days, authoritarian government, passed out of that into a form of democracy. Uh, and maybe passing right out the other side back into authoritarianism uh, and maybe totalitarianism. Freedom of the press is going down, freedom of uh, political activity is going down, control of both uh, the media and the economy largely are being re-centralized in the Kremlin. Russians today still refer to uh, the leader in, uh, in the Kremlin as they did under communism and under the czars as the boss, as in Putin, the boss wants X, Y, or Z, so of course they're going to do it. Uh, I think we can see in Russia's increased belligerence in the space of the former Soviet Union, where they are clearly seeking a return of uh, a hegemony, if not reunification, that, that, this, uh, that the direction of uh, Russian policy uh, while certainly not communist in the sense we understood it, maybe maybe best described as a reversion to Russia of the uh, 19th century and before, is entirely comfortable with uh, centralized control over both politics and the economy. This this may be an example of democracy lasting 10 or 15 years, depending on how you measure it, uh, between large periods of authoritarian rule. Uh, and I don't know many who are really optimistic about uh, Russia going forward. Let's take China as another example, uh, a, a, a system under uh, the communists, the most authoritarian, I think, in uh, the, the, the world uh, during that period. Uh, uh, capping a century of unrelieved turmoil and conflict inside China beginning uh, at the beginning of the 20th century with the collapse of the last Chinese dynasty. Uh, we have heard for years now, really decades, uh, that China's opening up, that it's making progress, it's becoming a freer society, uh, much of which is based on what is happened to the Chinese economy. And to be sure, uh, central uh, control there has diminished. There are uh, possibilities for uh, private entrepreneurship and investment domestically and uh, internationally. But there has been essentially no relaxation of political control from the center. Uh, for at least 25 years now, I've been reading about how wonderful local elections are in China, where the cadres get together and they elect the village leader, and that inevitably this is going to spread throughout China and you'll have a democratic competitive system at the national level. Okay, so you say 25 years, look, in a, in a culture that's lasted six millennia, don't be in a hurry. 
I think 25 years is a pretty long time where uh, the, the idea of, uh, uh, of popular sovereignty would begin to catch on a little bit more. Uh, and, and some would say, well, you know, it did catch on a little bit more right up until June of 1989 in Tiananmen Square when the People's Liberation Army voted on what it thought about uh, increased political liberty. Uh, and uh, which I think uh, remains essentially the situation today. The Communist Party is the dominant political force in China, without question. Uh, and within the structure of the Communist Party, the People's Liberation Army remains the dominant political force. Uh, chairmanship of the Central Military Commission is the real locus of power inside China. Uh, and that doesn't uh, appear to be uh, getting ready to change. So while a lot of people talk internationally about the peaceful rise of China, uh, as in that wonderful phrase that it will be a responsible stakeholder in world affairs, uh, I don't see that as inevitable at all, nor do I see it as a place where foreigners are necessarily uh, treated uh, equally and there's opportunity to make money. You can see now in recent reports by the U.S. and European chambers of commerce in Hong Kong and Beijing evidence of increased discrimination against foreign investment. At the same time, you can see evidence of China's increasing military buildup, its extension of claims uh, in the Yellow Sea, the East China Sea, the South China Sea, its acquisition of blue water naval capabilities. Uh, this remains an extraordinarily centralized uh, and highly controlled uh, governmental system and, and one that uh, I think is being becoming increasingly uh, threatening to uh, American interest. Uh, let's take a couple of smaller cases. Let's take North Korea, for example. Here is a state that is essentially a prison camp. That's the easiest way to understand it. It controls everything. Um, it has been sanctioned internationally for decades, uh, and yet it possesses nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons that have intimidated its near neighbors uh, to the point of near impotence. How poor is North Korea? This poor. From the time of partition in 19... 45 until today, when both North and South started equally poor. In fact, the North was better off because it had more uh, of, of the uh, industrial capacity. Until today, we find that the average North Korean is four to six inches shorter than the average South Korean, and that the weight differential is comparable. Now, this is a society that both during the Bush and uh, uh, Obama administrations, we have been saying, you know, we, we, can, we, we can help you with the economic betterment of your country if you'll only give up your nuclear weapons. What could we possibly have been thinking? To say that to a government that doesn't care that its population is literally shrinking so that it can keep nuclear weapons, I mean, that is squeezing just about everything you can uh, out of your population literally in a centralized government. Uh, so when I hear, the, as I say, the utilitarian argument in favor of individual freedom, if you're Kim Jong-il, utilitarianism works his way. Uh, Iran, you have a uh, theocracy that since 1979, since the Islamic Revolution, has uh, turned the country uh, into close to an economic basket case, uh, and yet is within a very short period of time itself of getting uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, the, the Obama administration, as the Bush administration, talks always about the Islamic Republic of Iran. 
the Republic of Iran. How sweet. Forgetting that the first word of Islamic reflects uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, notion that, uh, that Iran is governed by jurisprudence uh, of, that comes directly from Allah. And, you know, it's, uh, this is what theocratic rule means, and increasingly militarized theocratic rule as the, re as the Revolutionary Guards take control. You know, if, if the law comes from God, and the only people who can really understand it are the mullahs, are you really going to have a vote on whether you agree or disagree with God? I mean, this, is, this idea that we're going to have free and fair elections in Iran under that kind of theocratic system uh, is, is just uh, naive, to say the least. Uh, and let's, let's look at the, uh, the, my favorite in Latin America, Hugo Chavez. Uh, here's a man who's conducting a slow-motion coup in Venezuela. Uh, it's taken him 10 years to get to this point of manipulating elections. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he's a sort of kinder and gentler version of Fidel Castro. He didn't do it all at once. He's doing it slowly. But Venezuela uh, continues to sink under this increasingly uh, centralized control. And, and he poses a threat uh, not only to uh, U.S. interests in uh, the region because of his uh, ties with Russia and Iran, especially on nuclear uh, matters, but in threats to the fragile democracies elsewhere in Latin America. He's interfered in the elections in Mexico, Colombia, Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru. He supports the FARC uh, narco-terrorists in uh, Colombia. Uh, and and uh, this, this is a uh, this, again, is an economy that uh, has incredible riches, uh, but, but, but which are being diverted to the purpose of maintaining Chavez and the military in power. Uh, and yet, as long as oil stays the price that it is on international markets, uh, the implications, the uh, utilitarian implications for the Venezuelan people are not going to slow Chavez down at all. And then, of course, there's, there's Al-Qaeda, Al the, the ultimate uh, uh, libertarian organization. It's not even a state at all. Uh, and yet they are able to uh, threaten and carry out uh, terrorist organizations all around the world. Now, that, that is simply a quick run-through of some of the threats we face from people who don't, don't believe history has ended, who don't follow the Washington consensus, who aren't wild about markets and individual liberty, uh, and who do pose uh, problems of one sort or another for the United States and our friends around the world. Now, what about the United States itself? Uh, I think we've still got here in this country the most libertarian country in the world. Not perfectly so, not more in every single aspect than any other country, but, but nonetheless one where we do prize uh, individual liberty and initiative uh, more than, than in, in the aggregate than any other place in the world. Consider, for example, the following. Would you think about uh, having the United States and any other country vote together to merge the two countries, as uh, the Europeans seem bent on doing. Suppose all of the provinces of Canada were admitted to the United States as states. Not going to happen, obviously, but just suppose it. What do you think the balance in the Senate would be today? Uh, pretty, pretty frightening, if you want my opinion, with all due respect to our friends in Canada. So. Uh, when you hear the uh, international left and the left in this country saying things like, you know, we've got global problems today, and global problems require 
global solutions. So we need to get past these antiquated notions of national sovereignty, uh, and we need to look at solutions that get you to pooled sovereignty or shared sovereignty. What they are saying fundamentally uh, is you Americans have too much control over your government. And what you really need is to share a little bit of that with us. Now, I think most Americans don't think we have enough control over our government, even after last Tuesday's election, so that they recognize that this idea of pooling or sharing sovereignty it, it is very directly uh, an impingement on their authority as citizens, and that the removal of sovereignty, even from as distant a place as Washington to an even more distant place, uh, is something that will only uh, work to their uh, detriment. So that's why I think ideas like uh, the International Criminal Court or uh, a number of proposals that were being discussed at Copenhagen to uh, deal with climate change or a whole range of other issues that are out there uh, are something that, uh, although they've been rebuffed by the United States in the short term, uh, are, are very much going to be on the international agenda going forward. And I think the risk in the next two years, in particular with Obama gridlocked at home domestically, I hope, because of these elections, he will turn his attention internationally or just coincidentally, of course, he's traveling now, and think that this might be a way to uh, achieve some of the aims that he's not going to be able to get uh, domestically. So, uh, so, so what do we conclude from, from all this? Number one, the, the economy it, it, with almost any kind of market basis to it uh, creates such enormous potential for deadweight loss that governments around the world have a lot of room to do very foolish and dangerous things, and given the chance, they usually do. Uh, for totalitarian regimes, the, the lessons that they should have learned from the last century uh, are don't attack your enemies too early or too often. If you're just a little bit more patient, uh, you might have a, a better chance to succeed. And then third and finally, I think the most important lesson of the last century is don't mess with the United States. Now, that's, that's a pretty good rule, although not a sufficient rule. There have been conflicts, although we won the, the headline Three World Wars, conflicts where we did not prevail, usually because we did it to ourselves. We didn't fight to a stalemate in Korea. We stopped after the Chinese intervention halfway up the Korean Peninsula, essentially voluntarily. We obviously did it to ourselves in Vietnam. I would argue we did it to ourselves in the first Persian Gulf War by not overthrowing uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, but the big question, uh, I think, today, going forward, uh, is whether this third rule, don't mess with the United States, still applies. And uh, as happy as uh, I am about last Tuesday's election, uh, this battle is far from over. It is still a jump ball uh, over the direction of the United States, both in our domestic uh, policy uh, and internationally. And if the time comes uh, around the world where people don't worry about messing with the United States, uh, not only is the rest of the world going to be in worse shape, we're going to be in a lot worse shape too. Thank you very much.